Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I am joined by Dr Yayan Kranswick, a senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University in the School of Clinical and Applied Sciences. Yayan has a background in sport and exercise and subsequently set up his own sports therapy business with a passion in return to play exercise rehabilitation. Yayan's key areas of interest are body image and the psychological response to injury, with a particular interest in male body image, muscularity, masculinity and steroid use. Yayan joins us today to discuss muscle dysmorphia, muscle orientated body image and their link to eating disorders. Hello Yayan. Hi, well, another introduction. It's always awful hearing people introduce you like thinking just it's fine it's fine call me yeah and it's fine it's a bit <laughs> egotistical i think sometimes when they list all these things off but um no it's a pleasure to be here i've been looking forward to it first so this has been in the uh, in the pipeline for a while hasn't it and it's yeah. looking forward to to sharing this i've been following some of the, the, the podcasts you've done and i'm still catching up on them but um particularly the one with george mm-hmm. uh mycock i found really quite quite interesting yeah. so there may be a few things that kind of overlap with that and mm-hmm. if George disagrees then anything I say you can <laughs> drop me an email and we can we their ideas there but now I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah absolutely I'm super excited to talk to you today and I feel like George will be equally as excited so watch out for your emails because you'll probably get a few from him. The first thing I wanted to talk about today, which is obviously the core topic of our conversation, is muscle dysmorphia. So for those listening, would you just mind explaining what that is? No, absolutely. So muscle dysmorphia, it's, it's, it's creeping into the mainstream a little bit more. And people might have heard terms kind of bigorexia, and which are terms I don't really like, and muscle-oriented body image and muscle dissatisfaction. So there's a lot of terms that get thrown around, but there's some kind of key fundamental differences between some of those terms. So muscle dysmorphia is a term coined, and it kind of en- encompasses kind of real pathological preoccupation with being large or being muscular. So it's a real clinical preoccupation, whereas the majority of people might have some form of concern with muscularity or want to be a little bit more muscular but muscle dysmorphia is that kind of clinical clinical beast if you like it's that pathological preoccupation so it's mm. it's someone that has that alongside consumption by weightlifting in their lives so their lives become consumed by weightlifting muscle related dieting and those muscle related activities so it's that preoccupation with all those things that come with it that then suddenly take over someone's life and then there's the kind of a few arms to it. There's then the level of significant distress that these things cause. So it's not just being a little bit concerned. It's it's really distressing to have these preoccupations. And then the, there's the kind of social side of it as well, with, where with muscle dysmorphia, there is this real impairment to social and occupational functioning. 
So these behaviours related to muscularity really get in the way of everything else that people want to do, whether that be family or romantic relationships or work and jobs. So we've got these different terms that we might see banded around, but muscle dysmorphia is kind of clinical pinnacle, if you like, where it's suddenly become a little bit more than just a bit of a concern or a desire Mm -hmm. to be a bit more muscular and a bit bigger. It's this real kind of preoccupation and almost compulsion it's it's it becomes all-encompassing it's everything you think about and everything you do is geared towards that so that's kind of the best way to kind of describe it it's that it's that preoccupation with being large and being muscular coupled with all those kind of dysfunctional behaviors distresses and and thought processes i guess yeah i think the research that you're doing is so important because often we I think there's a stigma to look at someone that's in the gym, you know, quite big and muscly and think, God, they must love themselves. But I don't think people ever consider the psychological thoughts behind that, like, you know, that need to go to the gym or that drive. There's got to be something that's driving that compulsivity to then go to the gym all the time, affect social relationships. It's not just as simple as I like looking in the mirror and I see that I'm big. Actually, most people you ask probably wouldn't even see that they're big. Yeah, and that's what kind of muscle dysmorphia, kind of founding father for this, if you like, is a guy called Harrison Pope, who who kind of coined this term and really was the founding father of of muscle dysmorphia and all the research behind it to to date from the kind of back in the early 90s. And it's he kind of tried to capture that element that it, this isn't just someone that just wants to be a bit bigger a bit more muscular and that superficial kind of desire mm. this is a real distressing thing this takes over someone's social life someone's work life this the, everything they do from the weightlifting to the eating to the the thought process the mirror checking it's not that superficial vanity it's mm-hmm. that's all part of because they're tr- they've got this preoccupation for for whatever reason and we'll come on to it a bit later i'm sure but so a lot of my research wants to kind of get to the the, the, the roots of those things and the, and the diversity of those things. So a lot of people share a little bit of a uh, share of a desire or some people might share clinically diagnosed muscle dysmorphia. But I guarantee that a lot of the stories behind that are very different. They might mm. have some of the similarities, but they're, they're kind of roots to, to why they want to be a certain way and why everything's revolving around this, this ideal idea of being big and muscular well, could be very different. So that's kind of where my research interest really lies, mm. getting to the hearts of these people's stories. I think we learn a lot more through that than, than giving someone a, a questionnaire uh, and saying, OK, what do you score on this scale of muscle dysmorphia? It's, it's, that's a little bit superficial for me. Yeah, I think you're so right about the individualization of treatment. And I think eating disorders in general, the treatment process needs to take into account that just because you've given one person one diagnosis, it doesn't mean that they're going to present the same as somebody else or that the treatment process will work for them as well. And I guess that leads me on to my next question. I don't know whether you've looked into this or if there's an answer, but are there specific characteristics that might predispose somebody to developing muscle dysmorphia? Because like we said before, you can just, some people can just enjoy going to the gym, putting on a bit of muscle and that's fine. Whereas for other people, it becomes like their sole purpose and really compulsive to develop that muscle. A really difficult question, and it, no, it's not a difficult question. It's a difficult one to answer because it's <laughs> there is no. If there was a one size kind of fits all pattern, it, it would be a re, like with eating disorders, like with with any real real condition, it would be quite an easy thing or an easier thing to manage because we'd know the, the the pathways to it. But with something like muscle dysmorphia, there are, there are some common elements. So there are a few models that are floating around out there. Um, a guy called Grieve that's done a lot of work, he came up with a kind of conceptual model of how muscle dysmorphia might come about. And that had things like 
people with perfectionistic tendencies, uh, low self-esteem, people with already kind of pulling away body dissatisfaction or distorted views of themselves generally. These might be kind of pathways to muscle dysmorphia. But then there are, there are quite a few other things in there. So things like um, sport participation, media pressure, which gets gets a lot of lot of attention, media pressure, but that is just a small part of this jigsaw that might influence one person or might not even influence other people. But so they, they came up with some kind of these this conceptual model which is is, is quite useful. And then more recently there's a, a team of, of researchers out in Australia, Stuart Murray, um Scott Griffiths uh, and a few few others, they have a real they do a lot of work into muscle dysmorphia alongside eating disorders, which mm-hmm. is really useful. And they kind of compared that to one of the, the models used to look at how and why eating disorders are maintained and developed. And they found that the model used for eating disorders looked at things like a bit like the grieve model of perfectionism, low self-esteem, kind of interpersonal difficulties. So so kind of life events and things like that. And what they found is that muscle dysmorphia shares a lot of these kind of developmental and, and maintenance factors. So I've not really answered your question there. So there's all these things that are out there that are potentially linked to the development, but we don't really know. If we look outside of the muscle dysmorphia literature into the drive for muscularity literature, which is a little bit different, it's that non-clinical kind of drive for muscularity. Mm-hmm. There are some suggestions from, from qualitative work there that Things like uh, childhood experiences and bullying or relationships with, with parents, particularly fathers, and the kind of masculine relationships and ideals kind of um, projected onto them there may have an influence into their development of, of, a, of a preoccupation or a desire for muscularity down the line. So there's no real kind of characteristics that leave people prone, I guess, or vulnerable to it. But I guess it's like anything. If you look at the populations that are, are, are researched and explored, it's bodybuilding populations and, and powerlifting populations and the weight training populations or, or, or sports that have muscularity or muscular physiques embedded into them. So I guess being around those those images and around those ideals and have that constant comparison between yourself and someone else, that could fuel that distorted view. And then I guess if you have some of those, those other elements that I mentioned earlier, you are also perfectionist you have low self-esteem you have all these media issues i I guess they can all feed in Mm. i guess there's there's no kind of one characteristic or even a few characteristics that would leave someone particularly vulnerable so i I appreciate i didn't really answer your question there it's a difficult one and the other the other issue we've got and uh, and make one a bit more about this later is that we don't still don't know enough about it and that's part of that is because we can't actually formally diagnose it they haven't right. got anything to really fully to, to, to kind of formally diagnose the condition. We've got measures that we can use that give us an insight into the, the levels of symptoms. Um, we have some interview diagnostic, what, what we call the interview diagnostic criteria. But we haven't actually really got anything that's robust that can say you have muscle dysmorphia. So when you haven't got that, that, that kind of straightforward test to, to really diagnose it, how do we know what's causing it? Because we don't know yeah. if someone really has it. So yeah. it's, it's a difficult one, that, that question. Sorry, I've waffled on a little bit. No, it's absolutely fine. I think I knew that it wasn't just going to be a straightforward answer because if it was a straightforward answer, nobody would be struggling with this sort of thing and we'd just be able to help them. And I suppose being an eating disorder, 
it's multifactorial, isn't it? You can't just say, okay, so one person had a poor childhood experience and that's what caused it. So that's what happened to everybody because somebody could have had a, you know, a really good childhood experience and still be struggling with muscle dysmorphia. I think as well in terms of causes and causative factors, for me, I personally think that prevention rather than spending ages trying to work out what caused it is better. So having discussions with people, you know, kind of preventing this drive for muscularity is more optimistic. But I suppose, is there any research that's been conducted that has looked at, you know, creating a diagnostic criteria? Because I know you said at the start, it's not currently diagnosable. There's a lot of critique around the measures, um, but it's one of those. It, it's because it's so multifactorial, and because we're still in kind of adds it's still in the infancy of really understanding the, the development of it. And there's not much out there looking at at, at diagnostics particularly, mm. and there's such so, so, such a diverse range of what we can use. There's a, a huge variety of scales that people can use. It's it's where do you even start and what determines how do we measure some of those things as well. So how can we measure the level of someone's impairment through through work or someone's level of social impairment kind of putting figures and real quantitative stats on it because it's kind of a, a subjective thing mm. like i know that there's I, I i could say i have impairment at work but it's 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 not a, a real impairment f- in, in terms of for me it's not it might be different for everyone everyone's mm. kind of um perception of what is an impairment is different so some of the things that we know make up muscle dysmorphia themselves are quite hard to measure so then to put that into an overall diagnostic criteria is quite difficult so in answer to your question no there's nothing really that's mm. that's coming to the surface in terms of a real robust measure at the moment <laughs> well it sounds like if anyone does want to get um involved in that research then there's a huge gap so a really great opportunity for somebody there But that kind of nicely leads me on to what else I wanted to talk about with you. And I'd seen that you have been doing some research looking into how COVID has affected people with muscle-orientated body image issues. And I wondered if you wanted to explain kind of what you found or what your hopes are for the study. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, it's actually, we've not actually finished that project yet. It's still underway. Mm. Um, it's, It's really in its early stages. We're still kind of getting some recruitment going. But the the idea behind it, is kind of partly fueled by research that's that's out there and that's been released in the last sort of six months or so, but also kind of personal experiences and perhaps the experience of people talking to people that I've trained with or work with. And the kind of goal behind it is that there's a few papers out there at the moment that are showing that body image disturbances have increased in some people that have been locked down or, or, or unable to go to gyms. But from a kind of eating disorders perspective as well, there's a lot of research showing that people are, there are a lot of people struggling with kind of dietary restraint and mm. and being able to to manage their eating as, as well as they were pre pre lockdown. So there's there's this there's this huge pressure or um kind of huge change in people's thoughts and behaviours in association with their body image and their their eating because we're locked down and part of that is so some of the speculation is that there's increased screen time so people are exposed to more of these ideal images they've got more time to think about their body image yeah. so suddenly it starts to become more at the forefront of their thought processes and the the, the inability to go to the gym for someone this isn't really hasn't really come through in some of the, the papers which is why we wanted to have a little look at this is to phrase it as kind of a, a covid impact and a lockdown impact with a real focus on gym closures because we know that muscle dysmorphia and muscle oriented body image is there's a, there's a heavy investment in weight training because it's part of that 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 kind of desire so 
when suddenly you've got that huge part of your life taken away what impact mm. does that have on thought processes what behaviors do people suddenly undertake because I don't know about yourself because I know you're powerlifting that I looked at getting some home kit and suddenly mm. the prices of home kit rocketed because yeah. people capitalize on people wanting all that yeah so um what happens then when you get that massive part of your life taken out so just yeah. an interest and from my own perspective of not being able to train and suddenly start walking around the house and thinking oh I've, I can feel myself getting a little bit bigger here or a little mm. bit smaller here or whatever you, whatever your your perceptions are I think being locked down having those those elements taken away from you it, it really kind of brings everything more to the forefront and it starts to become a bit of an issue so but there's nothing been done on muscularity really at the moment so that was kind of let's try and fill this hole quickly while while it's while yeah. it's there so that's underway so I've not really got anything in terms of what I what we found what we expect to find is without putting too much preemption on it, is expecting to see some increase in people's concerns and some uh, maybe increase in some of the more kind of dysfunctional behaviours in terms of eating restrictions or um, excessive home exercise or excessive exercise. We see a lot more people out running. But then on the flip side of that, we kind of thought, well, we might see some people go the other way and actually realise that being home with families a lot more Mm. and seeing some of the things that are maybe quite important in life, does that then force some of those thoughts to take a back seat? And that said, that's that's just us speculating. That's nothing we've found. So it'd be interesting to get these stories. This is going to be a, a kind of qualitative piece because that's kind of my, my key research approach is talking to these people mm. and just asking them, okay, what has the impact been? So we might get completely different stories, yeah. which would be really interesting for us. And it'd be quite nice to see the different insights and experiences. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's that study. It's kind of underway, but I'm sure once it's, once we've got a bit more, I can, uh, I can fill you in on that and send over or have a yeah. chat about that at a, at a later date. Yeah. I think that research sounds so incredibly interesting. I feel like everybody will have had very different experiences with exercise in lockdown and just speaking anecdotally when I like you said I do powerlifting and when we first went into lockdown my next door neighbor put some weights into a skip and I was like oh my god like can I have those and he said yes and at the time I thought oh that's great like I can carry on with my exercise but actually I think it's been a bit negative because I'm so used to lifting heavy and then being at home, obviously I only had small weights, so I couldn't. So I just increased my the amount of exercise I was doing because I couldn't lift heavy. So I thought, well, just lift more frequently. And now going back to the gym, it's actually quite challenging because I still want to do the sort of quantity I've been doing, but also I want to increase the weights. And it's very difficult to have that balance. Yeah, and it's that's interesting that you mentioned that then, and about that kind of that that thought process and that mindset of of I can't lift heavy, so what's my other alternative to to achieve part of my goal and for you it's, it's do more. And I think we'll see a lot of that in this study, and and, and just thinking about it, it was something like George said in in the podcast before about we have these two holy grails for any muscular ideal where everyone wants to be big and everyone wants to be lean. Mm-hmm. And those two things aren't compatible. You have to get big and lean down. And you get big and you go, right, well, now I need to be leaner. So then when you lean down, you get smaller. So it's mm-hmm. they're just kind of two ends of a spectrum. You can't achieve both at the same time. So I think what we'll start to find is like that is to some people that they can't lift quite as heavy as they need to build that muscle mass, then they'll start to go, I'll just do more and I'll get leaner. Both things can be compulsive. So we suddenly start doing more of lighter stuff or we do more of heavy. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how people go with that. I know for myself, it's I don't have, don't have any weights at home because I 
like I just alluded to, I was refusing to pay the prices. Uh, but my gym closed, and I think, well, I'm someone that needs to exercise to, to to fuel what I need and to fuel my desire. So what can I do? So like you, I'll do more of the body weight stuff and the hit stuff. Okay, well, I'll, I'll now take up running that I hate. I think well, anything's going to be better than nothing or something just to chip away at the little bit of my goal. And when I'm back in the gym, like you did that, I can test those maxes again. I can lift heavy again. But let's just do something that's going to keep me on track. And whether that's that's functional or not, and what, what, whatever your, your approach is, I just think it'd be interesting to see those stories and the impact that that's had on people's kind of... Yeah, and I was hoping that I was going to go back to the gym with a new exercise routine, but then as soon as I got in the squat rack, I thought, nope, I like powerlifting. I like having my rest breaks rather than constant. Yeah, it's all about the element of control, though, isn't it? And it's it's the the, the weightlifting is a way of controlling the body, and the, and controlling the body is then almost like a not a metaphor, but it's almost a it's having that control. Your body is something that we can control, or whether if in eating disorders, there's there's some papers on 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 eating disorders being part of a, a performance narrative and being able to control elements of your life because it's something that you have physical control over. So I think when you have avenues of being able to control your body, so having the gym removed or suddenly not having access to to the right foods or having an abundance of the foods that maybe you not yeah. don't allow yourself is then you start to take that as elements of control away or mm. or some people might then become over controlling with, with with other things. So it's yeah, it's going to be an interesting one that study, and I think lockdown is going to have a, a lot to answer for in terms of. And some of the issues we see coming out of the back of it. I suppose my question would be, and it's absolutely fine if you don't, but do you have any advice for somebody that maybe is listening and thinks, yeah, my exercise has become quite compulsive and isn't quite sure how to manage that now going back to the gym? Yeah, it's 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 hard, especially if we've got if 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 people are kind of have a have a particular kind of spiky relationship with that sort of thing it's going to be hard for me or anyone to tell them you know what just be careful when you go back in because you've not done stuff for a while it's like well no like like you and I have just talked about there we're going to go in we're going to test our maxes I'm yeah. going to go back in and I'm going to lift what I've tried to lift before knowing full well that I've had however many months off not doing it um so it, it, it's hard to give people advice on going back I would just kind of say that go in with that that open mind that you and this is probably the wrong way to put it, especially as kind of therapy background, uh, sports therapist background, everything else. But go into it thinking, well, if I go too hard here, I'm then going to be off the gym for a much longer period of time. Because if I go too hard and then suddenly mm. I, I physically can't do any of this through injury or whatever that may be, then that's going to take you out of that, that scenario even more. So being sensible with it, but that's hard given that weight training and weightlifting is going to be such a big part of these people's lives and my life and your life and that everyone's just going to want to get back in and, and get on with that normality because that's what it is it's it's that controlled normality it's it, that part of life that allows you to be who you want to be and kind of construct this this body and this person that you want to construct so for someone someone like me to say oh you know what just just rein it in a little bit would be really quite yeah it wouldn't, wouldn't be the right thing for me to do <laughs> so yeah again not really answered your question on that and now this is why i really like that podcast it was he had kind of talked a lot about well it's not what you can really say to these people and what do you say what advice can you give them because it's that whole some people will realize they've got an issue and some might welcome some advice some might not realize that it is an issue and particularly for things like muscle dysmorphia and, and muscle related body image often and some of the people i've spoke to in previous research projects have, have talked about well I'm, this is a healthy behavior i'm training 
six, seven days a week. I'm eating really healthily and really cleanly. I'm taking these supplements to keep my body healthy and I've got this picture of health. So actually to tell someone, you know what, this isn't functional, this isn't, maybe you should rein all that in. It's like, well, why? I'm being healthy. So some people have this realisation that it might be a bit of an issue. But then some people are like, well, this isn't an issue. This is me being healthy and being normal. And I think it's a little bit, you've got to just be a little bit careful when you're approaching people with, with, with that. If I, any advice to people that are maybe close to anyone that they think might have issues or anyone that they kind of know have kind of a, a bit of a dysfunctional relationship maybe is to, I would look out for kind of subtle reach outs for support. If someone kind of reaches out and talks a little bit about their issues, just just listen, don't you? don't even have to say much and just kind of listen to with, with what they're saying, but then also work with how they're feeling and work with what they're saying. So I think one of the biggest things I've come across through my own experiences is people kind of, demonizing your views oh why do you need to be big why 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 that's that stupid you're never gonna it's like well it might be stupid to you but that's that's what i'm trying to be so that's one thing i would say is don't just to work with people's feelings and just kind of accept what they're telling you and don't demonize their views but also try and kind of this is a really fine line reinforce without over reinforcing your satisfaction with them this is particularly thinking from my own kind of relationships with my wife and things like that who say actually you know what you look fine to me and that that's really quite nice in that setting but then I go to the gym and go yes but I don't look like that person so for mm. me that's an issue it might not be so it's it's a really kind of difficult um, situation to be in when you you try and offer advice or try and advise people on offering advice because it's quite hard to get in people's heads for want of a better term and I'm trying to talk about this from my own experiences and struggles with it as well as someone looking from the outside is what goes on in my head, my reasonings for it, like we talked about at the beginning, are very different to someone else. So to advise on that would be nigh and impossible. Because yeah. sometimes, and I'm not sure about your experiences and, and other people's experiences, but sometimes it's quite hard to verbalise your experiences because you think about them and then as you go to say them, you go, well, actually, that's quite trivial. But it's caused all these issues, so it's yeah. definitely not a trivial thing. So, yeah, it's difficult to, to offer advice directly to people suffering, but also those kind of advising loved ones or close close friends or family I think it's really good that you picked up on supporting somebody because often I think exercise compulsion can be quite difficult to understand I know like just speaking anecdotally when I've said to my mum before like I need to exercise but I don't want to exercise she's like oh but exercise is good for you like it releases your endorphins and it'll make you feel good and I'm like you know I get that I get why exercise is good for us. It's that guilt and that compulsive, those compulsive thoughts beforehand that aren't healthy. And I think that's the difficult thing for people to understand if they've not experienced that before. I think as well, like if you are supporting somebody, it's kind of thinking it doesn't need to make sense to you. It's more that person just needs to be able to voice what they're feeling and feel validated. Because I think sometimes, especially with exercise, compulsion or addiction or whatever you're going to call it I think often you can feel like you're just I personally feel like I'm just being dramatic like oh everybody exercises it's fine but I don't need someone to have the answer I just need to be able to voice those concerns to to get it out rather than it just being stuck in my head and have somebody validate that you know I do appreciate what you're going through and I'm here for you rather than boom 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 here's an answer or well just get over yourself everybody exercises yeah, and I think, and I think that's right. And like you said, it's often that kind of cathartic nature of just talking about this and realizing then that 
oh, well, I'm not the only one that's suffering with this. The mm. experiences might be slightly different, but there's someone else that struggles with this. And that's, that is really quite useful. And, and it kind of like, so it kind of validates that normality that this isn't, this isn't this a stigmatized thing that it should be. This isn't something that I need to keep under wraps and, mm. and, and, and things like that. The difficulty we've got with things like muscle dysmorphia, particularly in men, is that it's this whole stoic nature of masculinity where it's like, well, yeah. I haven't got a problem. Even if known full well that inside yeah, I'm struggling with this, that there's mm-hmm. that kind of toxic masculine theme that goes, I, I can't tell anyone about this. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, coming back to the research, that's why it's, we don't know enough about it because the people we do talk to and the people that self-enroll on these studies are maybe not the people that we really need to get into mm-hmm. the into the nitty-gritties with. It's it's those those people that we need to kind of... The, the people that aren't coming forward, maybe they're the ones that have got some real underpinning mm-hmm. stories that we need to get into. So that's part of the problem with the research is that it's it, a little bit of a sensitive topic, particularly for males, because of that kind of restrictive masculinity that we've got still in society that kind of, well, I, I'm, I'm a man, I shouldn't express weakness, I don't need to admit that I've got an issue with this. But then masculinity also fuels that drive for being, for being bigger as well because it's like the bigger you are, the more muscular, the more we fit that ideal mm. masculine image that we've we've grown up with, which kind of something I missed off with the loved ones, talking about that image growing up and your exposure growing up from a masculine perspective is just be careful what we say to people as well and not necessarily people with with muscle dysmorphia or muscle related issues but for me as a as a as a father now I've got a two and a half year old boy still find myself having to bite my tongue from things that were said to me as a young boy and you look back on it and well did that have an effect it may not have done but just simple things like oh you eat those and you'll grow up and be a big strong boy and it's like why does a boy need to be big and strong Mm. boy doesn't need to be big and strong but we have these little things these little kind of phrases that I've grown up with from I know other people have grown up with, oh, yeah, it needs to be big and strong. Oh, just just get up and rub it better. Let's not be soft. It's like well, it's mm. all these kind of masculine traits. that, um, And one of the studies uh, that I got published last year delved into some of these life histories with people with, with muscle-related body image concerns. And they told some quite, quite telling stories about growing up. And they weren't always necessarily about muscle-related images, but through the years and through their exposure, their, their muscularity was then kind of a, a physical portrayal of those traits. So, for example, some people talked about growing up and their dad was like the main house breadwinner and he was, he was out working 14-hour days, grafting really hard. And then he got into it in my work in the gym because I don't do that work. So mm-hmm. I go to the gym and I'm big and I lift weights and I work really hard at sculpting my body to reflect that hard work and that, that kind of mm-hmm. that determination and that that kind of um, sacrifice so they kind of you know, they've almost transposed onto themselves the same ethics but expressing them in a different way so I think the, the, the kind of childhood experiences and the life experiences really do feed into these conditions so just being careful with what we say to people and which might be a throwaway comment but might yeah. kind of stick and it might just add to all that the, that kind of social shaping of people's identities and perceptions of themselves. Yeah, I suppose those comments are exactly what we don't want to be doing because they're augmenting the stigmas that we spoke about at the start. But I think it's really difficult to know where to even begin because they are so ingrained in our mind. You know, my dad is quite big and broad and to me, he's protective because of that. So it's how we even begin to tackle those. And also, you know, I was part of the powerlifting society at Warwick 
And constantly people would be talking about, oh God, your biceps look big or whatever, because it's such a focus to them that they then want to give that back to other people to give them that confidence boost. But I suppose nobody, when you're in that sort of area, that community of lifting weights or trying to get big, part of that is having that confidence and being that big bubbly person nobody probably wants to admit that actually they feel quite insecure because that doesn't fit with the persona of having big muscles and being the one that is a go-getter sort of thing yeah it's a strange one and there's a lot of work coming coming through now and some of the work that kind of permeated through my phd is this idea that muscularity is this this kind of form of capital for people and this kind of really helped me in terms of the, the, the diversity that I'm trying to capture. The, the muscularity is almost like this resource that people can build up and that can then be spent and used in ways that, that benefit them from an identity perspective or from a, a work perspective. So if I'm big and muscular in a setting where I need to look protective, I look like I can protect someone. Whether I can or can't is, is, doesn't matter. If I look like I can, then... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scare people off and people aren't going to mess with me or from a kind of sporting perspective, coming from a rugby background, it's like the bigger you are, the, the more competent people think you are on the pitch when actually it's not always that way around. I'm a small player and I always used to pride myself on just being able to play regardless of my size. But then you'd get pigeonholed or you get overlooked because you don't look like someone else. So the, 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 the idea that this muscularity has a lot of symbolic meaning to it it's not just about looking a certain way and this kind of, like we sort of talked about at the beginning, it's not just this superficial image, it's what that image represents and what that represents is very different for different people and can actually change in the context that someone puts them in. So I know that my body image, uh, I struggle with the way I look and perceive myself more so in certain situations. So at home, I'm fairly comfortable. But I go off and I'm in with my old teammates or I go into the gym and train people. Suddenly, what my what my muscle represents is different to what it represents at home. And it's not quite enough that I need to, to get the, the rewards that I want from it. So it, it that's been quite a, a breakthrough for me in terms of the, the way I look at it from a research perspective is that... Um, and the more we kind of understand the, the symbolic meaning of the muscularity, I think the more we can start to help some of these individuals. Um, more can help people that struggle with that do you think a big part of muscle dysmorphia is the comparison does that sort of thing play into it yeah and i think there's there's comparison yeah it's that social comparison and and it like i said in, in the model there's a lot about body distortion as a, as a development uh, developmental factor for it and i think we we can only my this is again anecdotal but my take on it is we can only really be distorted if we've got something to compare ourselves to mm. So how do I know I don't look right in, in kind of in inverted commas if I don't know what inverted commas right looks like? And it's then where has that right come from for us? And that's why I want to get into those stories because it might be that it's someone that's scrolling through Instagram and that is their right. I don't follow any of the kind of influencers on there because mainly probably because I'm worried about what it might do to me. But yeah. it's like... But it's where is that right coming from? Is that right from a that ideal image from something that you've grown up with? Have you had uh, influence uh, a, a relationship with your father or a brother? And a lot of the work we did in the, the life history stuff showed that there were a lot of key male figures in these people's lives that they looked up to. So then they tried to emulate those characteristics through their muscularity. So I think it, it yeah, I think the, the comparison's a big thing. And I think you're right, being at home, 
I've got no one to compare myself to. I am the dad, I'm the husband, I'm the one at home, and there's no one else to really compare to. But then I go into the gym, all those comparisons. I go to sport, mm-hmm. all those comparisons. Even at work, as a as a as a lecturer, you, you stand in front of students, and I'm not I'm not a big guy by any chance. So you get some students that walk in, and you're going, "Wow, you're <laughs> a uh, some of the physiques on students, the height, the the, the stature of students." And you go, and suddenly that can make you have to rain check yourself and go, "Who's in? It, sometimes who's in position of power here?" Well, actually, no, it's me because I'm teaching all these people. But it, it it's those silly that well again I'm just trivialising it for myself. It's those thought processes that can really trigger things for people. So I think the take home from that is that the difficulty we have with managing this is that it can be so setting and context dependent as well, is that we might get someone comfortable in a gym setting and go actually let them cope a little bit more with some of these activating events and some of these treating events in the gym, but then they might go into another context where their relationship with their body or their eating is completely different because it has a completely different symbolic meaning to it. So that's a real difficulty, I think. It almost sounds like there's so many factors to consider when you're kind of trying to work out what caused it, but then also in the recovery, it's just absolutely multifactorial as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit of a minefield, I think. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we'll start to learn a lot more about it and hopefully simplify it for us, but we'll yeah. see. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which ties into muscle dysmorphia, and I'm assuming would tie into the comparison as well, is the research that you've recently been doing on steroid use in people with muscle dysmorphia. So I wondered if you could just explain to us how the link occurs there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I've got a lot of lot of finger in a lot of research at the minute, um, but not enough time to write it, unfortunately. <laughs> because, uh, Covid's kind of throwing spanners in things. But yeah, so we've kind of come off the back of the paper got published last year on life histories with with men with issues. So kind of thought because there were some kind of allusions to steroids in that paper, but it wasn't the focus of of the project at the time. So myself and uh, a couple of colleagues thought, well, can we do a similar approach? and go down the life history approach and, and, that, and that qualitative approach with steroid users and maybe start to understand some of these these underlying stories, these childhood experiences, these kind of prolonged events and exposures. And, and, and I guess the, 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 the key aim of it is not just to understand why people use steroids, but start to understand what are some of the activating events? Mm. What are some of the things that make someone suddenly realise, you know what, just lifting weights and just eating well is not enough. Why do I need to take that step into steroids? Were there influential people? Was there anything that really kind of tipped them over the edge, that kind of tipping point? So that, that was kind of what well, that's what we're trying to look at there, and hopefully we can start to get some data collected soon. But a, a bit like the muscle dysmorphia population, steroid-using populations are hard one to, to reach out to because mm. it's still kind of a taboo subject. It's kind of really stigmatised and... People don't want to really admit to taking steroids unless they're within their kind of trust groups and their support groups. So it can be very difficult to access. Um, but hopefully just just a handful of those stories might make a few more people realise it. You know, like, like we talked about earlier, this, there's a lot of people that do this and it's normal and it's legal to take steroids and that sort of thing. That That's kind of part of the taboo is there's this, this preconception that steroids are illegal and that it's the not to take but they are to you uh, to, to sell sorry but so i think it's a difficult population to get into but hopefully we can get some of those stories and like i said it's it's those changes and those activating events that really interest me in terms of okay well when does someone really think 
you know what, I, this is what I need. I need to go down this route. And because often you have talked to just people in as part of other studies that have, have alluded to use um, and they've talked about, well, I was always used to be really against it and just saw it as cheating. But then something's told them, actually, no, this is this is what I need to do to, to get to my goals. And a lot of it in some of those people I spoke to, it boiled down to the idea of capital again. They felt that they had these certain traits that they possessed. So they had these certain things that were desirable socially, but their body still wasn't quite up there in terms of demonstrating that. Mm. And whatever they did just never got them over that threshold of uh, this is me showing my traits. These me showing that the... the the, the, the different characteristics I have, what I need to get me over that, that kind of biological threshold is now something different. So that, that social need to, to project characteristics and identities kind of overtook them and suddenly this was now a feasible behaviour to do because it was going to get me to where I wanted to be. So I really want to get into more of those stories. So you spoke about cheating there. Do you think that's maybe why people don't want to talk about it? Because, you know, hand on heart, I did used to think that taking steroids was cheating, but then you realise that if you do take steroids, you don't suddenly just grow massive biceps. You still have to put in the same, if not more, work to achieve that. It just kind of supports that process along. But do you think that because of that, that, maybe why people aren't as open to talk about it in a research setting because of that stigma yeah i think that's got to be particularly especially in sport if you're if you're competitive so things like you kind of put your power lifting competitive sports where, where steroids are, are prevalent yes i think that has a big thing to do with it you don't want to be seen as a cheat but i also think it's it's kind of seen as a, a deviant behavior as well it's kind of that oh that's that's a frowned upon deviant behavior that's not something that should people should be doing and I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not condoning steroids, but I'm, I'm not against. So what I want is, is like with everything, is to, to understand why people do it and offer more education around mm. and around these things. Um. So, yeah, I think it, there's that element of cheating, particularly from a sporting and a competitive uh, element. But then also that I think the other side of it for maybe those that aren't in a competitive situation, it's that deviancy and that kind of frowned upon on behaviour. So hopefully something like the study, this study and more studies down the line can help reduce some of that stigma. And, and you know what? It's not about the steroids. It's about well, why is it that people need to take these things? Let's understand that first. And let's understand. Because I think the other, the other thing is, is that kind of we can we can look at people that take steroids and we can look at individuals who see that we know, know do take steroids. And go, it's, it's, it's just vain. Why do you need to look like that? And actually, vanity is probably not even up there for a lot of these people. It's it's about the things we've talked about, the, mm. the kind of the identity-related reasons, the characteristics they're trying to project, these kind of other personality traits that they want to, to give off. Unfortunately, the body's the easiest way to do that because it's mm. the first thing everybody sees. And in, interestingly, one of the guys in one of our PhD studies talked about, we talked about biceps there as well. I train my biceps a lot, I train my shoulders don't really train my legs and things because nobody can see my legs when I've got trousers on. So I go for the mirror muscles and he called them the mirror muscles. He went, because that's what people see. So they'll see those and go, wow, you've got big arms and suddenly make these connections with all the things we talked about then. Well, if you've got big arms, that must mean you're determined, you're invested, you're yeah. you're protective, you're capable. And so that's what, okay, they, they make all these kind of attach these attributes to, to big muscles. Whether, um, so, yeah. Uh, I'm looking for, like I said, looking forward to a lot of these stories from the COVID perspective, but also the the, the steroid perspective. I think mm. it's gonna, it's a, it's a good way of understanding a little bit more of the whys, and I think if we understand a little bit more about the whys, we can then start to work on helping them 
helping people with this so yeah it sounds like you know when you have muscle dysmorphia there are those distortions there so maybe the individuals that are that have muscle dysmorphia don't see that their muscles have grown and they then think okay I'm training seven times a week I'm eating you know very lean food but I'm still not seeing the results that I want because of the distortions they can't see it so they then have to kind of move towards something extreme like taking steroids to make sure that they can achieve those goals that they've put in place which they probably already achieved but can't see it because of the muscle dysmorphia yeah exactly and it, that's really kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit it's it's something it doesn't it doesn't come enough to achieve what we want to achieve and one of the one individual i interviewed for one of the other studies was he actually talks about moving the goal posts he's like so yeah i want to get to and he might put he might put a figure on it and he might give me an example of what he wants to look like because i get there and then the goal posts have moved and then and we talked about it when george talked about being big or lean and not being compatible it's like that. You get big and you go, yes, I've got to where I want to be, but actually that's not where I want to be anymore. That's not the goalpost. And I need, I need to be bigger again or now I want to be leaner. So we're constantly kind of chasing something. And is it is it that it's not actually the outcome that they're, they're kind of striving for? It's the process that's really getting yeah. to grips with them. Is it the lifting and the control that they're getting from all of that that's the kind of addictive thing, if you like? But in terms of the, the distortions that you talked about there, that's that's kind of characteristic of muscle dysmorphia. Like body dysmorphic disorder, It's we have these very distorted views of themselves. So if you look at someone with muscle dysmorphia, clinically diagnosed muscle dysmorphia, the likelihood is they're going to be quite a big muscular individual. They're going to have muscle that someone from a, a general population might be, wow, they're, they're, they're muscular, but they look in the mirror and what they see is completely different to what we see. And like you said, are those changes then less sensitive or are they less sensitive to those changes because they, they have got this distorted view and no matter what they do, doesn't change what they see in the mirror. So then suddenly seven days a week is not enough. Eating extremely clean, cutting things out that maybe they shouldn't cut out, trying to eat five grams of protein per kilo of body weight every day is not working. What's the next step? And that is then potentially steroids. It's potentially something else. So, yeah, it, it, I think there is a lot of that in there. It's just because those goalposts keep moving and some people maybe are not sensitive to their goals or sensitive to the changes, then they're constantly looking for those next steps. I find it really interesting that you've mentioned the goalposts because I know personally that not just with the way that I look or exercise, but I'm like that with every aspect of my life, be it academia or research or work or whatever, I remember when I was lifting, I was going for a 140 deadlift and I'd been aiming for it for a while. But by the time it came to it, that I was actually strong enough to lift it. I didn't care because I'd already moved and I wanted 150. So it's like not being able to enjoy that actually reaching your goal because your head's already gone to the next one. Yeah, and maybe it comes back to that, comes some of those developmental factors. Is it that those people with real kind of perfectionistic tendencies or competitive tendencies, are they more prone because then they... They see this as another way of succeeding. And I kind of talked a little bit about some of the, the, the work on eating disorders and, and performance narratives and actually using the control over your body as a way of, of succeeding. So is this just another way for these individuals to succeed and take control over something? But then, like I said, if they're also then competitive in nature and perfectionistic, they go, right, well, I've got to here, but actually that's still not good enough. I'm lifting one for or I can... Actually, no, 140 is not good enough anymore. Let's go for 150. Why am I stopping here? And then it's hard to put your finger on it because everyone's driven by different things. But I know you ask anyone, I'm very competitive and I have the same thought processes with, with <laughs> most things in my life. Well, 
I've done that now, why not go for the next thing? Or, yeah. or you, like you said, you get close to something and go, actually, let's just push it a little bit further. Mm. So, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that in there. And I think what comes out of some of these stories and the more I kind of research this area, I think we'll see a lot more of, of things like that. Yeah, and I don't personally see any problem with constantly wanting to progress. Like, my perfectionism has got me quite far, but I guess the difficulty is when you do keep moving those goalposts and you're not able to enjoy that process. Because I think, you know, it, you know, not to be cliche, they do say it's about the journey, not the destination. But if you're not even able to enjoy any, either of them, I guess that's when the problem comes in. Yeah, and I think that's where we come back to that line between being muscle dysmorphic and being or having a desire for muscularity. I think having mm. a diet, desire to, to for muscularity can be a healthy thing. And mus- yeah. muscle-orientated body image and body uh, muscle satisfaction can be quite a healthy thing because um, it encourages us to, to engage in some of these healthy behaviours and it encourages us to look after ourselves a little bit. But then there's that line where it suddenly becomes not enjoyable. It suddenly starts to cause that distress. Mm-hmm. It creeps into that impairment where, and if you look at some of the case study work by, by Stuart Murray and, and, and his colleagues, they have kind of scenarios and cases of people actually being sacked from jobs because they suddenly they have to leave work because I've got to train or I'm late for work because I'm training in the morning. Doesn't And that comes first, that training comes first. Or having to leave work to, to go cook meals or not going out for meals with friends and family because you don't know what's in it and it's not the macros that you've you've planned for yourself. So that is the line that then crosses into being dysmorphic because I know myself, yeah, I go through, go through phases where I think, oh, I'd, I'll go to the gym and I might be five minutes late on that call or I will well, just watch what I'm eating, I'll go out for a meal and maybe I'll have this instead of that. But I know there are times where I'll go out and go, you know what, I will go out for meals. I don't then suddenly stop myself doing those things because of that potential or I don't start going, well, actually work comes second, training comes mm. first. So it's that that line of that, that social and occupational impairment, that's when it then becomes a little bit of an issue, for want of a better word, or a bit more dysfunctional for people. Thank you so much for joining me today the discussion with you has been incredible and I feel so honoured to have been able to tap into your brain and ask you so many questions about muscle dysmorphia because it really is a very interesting topic we've sort of already covered the last question that I like to ask everybody but I'm going to ask it you just so that we can close off nicely so if somebody's listening and they resonate with what you've been saying about muscle dysmorphia what would be your top tip or your best advice for them to get help I think just like we talked about it just just talking about it and kind of trying to come to terms with well why is that I feel this way mm-hmm. is there something and I come back to those activated events some of the triggering events and they might not be one thing like you said there might be people go well I've had a perfect upbringing but just having to think and I think just kind of sitting and asking yourself why and this is easier said than done because then what what then starts to happen as you ask yourself why is you start to get towards the meaning of that mm-hmm. and then is there then if you get to the meaning of what that muscle or that body image or that image means to you then you can start to think well is there anything I can do or anyone can I can ask to help me with this sort of thing? And I, I talk about that from a, a personal perspective. So I don't have muscle dysmorphia. I have issues with my body image and I, I do struggle sometimes with muscle dissatisfaction and drive for muscularity. But in recent years, so retiring from rugby through injury, started to realise that a lot of my struggles have come from that identity thing and understanding, well, my body image and my, my desire for muscularity was never about vanity or even you talk to some some of the people i've spoken to it's about sexual attraction it was never about that for me it was about 
projecting this competent identity in various contexts. So then suddenly I started to go, okay, well, are there any other areas that I can get similar fulfillment for those things mm. that might then just help rein in the, the, yeah, the muscularity? And for me, that's been kind of being a father and a husband. Like I said, that's probably why I'm comfortable in that setting is because being a father and kind of having your identity fulfilled as a man in that way then suddenly takes a little bit of pressure off having to look a certain way Mm. and because I'm doing the things that a man should do protection physically and providing and all that sort of thing Um, and there is a there's a paper out there by um, a guy called Christian Edwards who's on some of the work with me at the moment and he talked about in one of his papers about activating and stabilizing events and some of these individuals talked about these real kind of uh, traumatic breakups and things that spark their relationship with muscularity but then becoming a father or finding a real settled relationship provides some fulfillment for them so their level of desire or drive for that muscularity actually reduced so i think coming back to the the, the, the actual answer to your question is just asking yourself why why am i feeling like this and, and it is normal to feel like that but just if you can get to why you feel like it, it might just help you kind of come out the other side a little bit better. It's probably not going to fix the issue, but it might just help you find other ways of, of coping or just reducing the pressure that you put on yourself in that body image realm or the, the, the things you do to achieve that. So I think that, that would be my biggest tip. I know it's a waffled version <laughs> of it, but it's that's kind of that's what I'd maybe say is yeah. try and ask yourself why. And that's what I'm trying to do with all this research. So. If anyone does want to get involved as participants, by all means, get in touch because like, oh, we always like hearing people's stories. So, well, on that note, how could they get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm more than happy. So I can I can send my email across, or they can follow me on on Twitter. So it's at IC Sports Therapy. There'll be stuff coming out on there. But if they, it, by all means, you can share an email if you've got platform for that on your podcast. If you want to pop that to any attachments yep. you have, more than happy for people to just get in touch That's with it. emails um, and they can come down. Even if it's just for a chat and they don't want anything to do with the research, it's always quite nice just to, to have that reach out, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sometimes be understood that by someone that's either experienced it or is, is interested in it. Um, it can be quite, like you said, validating, but also quite comforting as well. Yeah. Like I've already said, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. So thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to hear about all your research. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. What an amazing conversation to have with the iron today. I feel so privileged to have been able to talk to somebody at the heart of understanding more about muscle dysmorphia. I think there's such a stigma, lack of awareness and also normalisation of the sort of emotions and feelings that are felt in muscle dysmorphia. Next week we'll be joined by Kerry Jones who is the CEO of ORI which is a specialist day patient treatment centre for people with anorexia, bulimia and binge eating disorder and again I just feel so privileged to have been able to talk to Kerry about the work that they do at ORI, the community vibe they have there and their motivation for why the step down approach of treatment that they provide is so important and beneficial to their clients. You know ORI is by definition a community and it was very much a community that put ORI together so you know I started speaking to clients or patients as they called them like I said who'd perhaps had worked with over the years. Max and I met with lots of different patients clients who told us what what it should be, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. We met with carers and loved ones who equally told us what we should and shouldn't be doing. Um, And I talked to lots and lots of clinicians and said, 
you know, what, what works, you know, what have you seen, what do you think we need more of? And that's really how we built, built the kind of template for Ori. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so please be sure to subscribe. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may be struggling at the moment. Not only those with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire others to embark their recovery journey. For further support, please visit the Beat or the First Steps website or speak to your local GP. See you next week. Bye!